All right. Hello, Plastic Pills listeners. Today, Matt and I are talking to Jack Black, a senior lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University. Jack Black's research focuses on media and cultural studies, drawing on philosophy and psychoanalysis. His published works have covered diverse topics like uh, English nationalism, sports, ecology, and COVID-19. Today, we are talking to Jack purely because I discovered a tweet that referred to his recently published book, Race, Racism, Political Correctness in in Comedy, a Psychoanalytic Exploration, combining two of our favorite topics at the Pill Pod, comedy and psychoanalysis, and bringing it to bear on a spicy topic like comedy and racism, I couldn't really resist. So I'm excited to have you here. Jack Black, welcome to the show. Hello. Yes. Thank you for that. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. So uh, before we get into like the kind of nuts and bolts of your book, in particular, like the kind of theoretical underpinnings, I was just wondering what provoked you to take an interest in this topic in particular. And everyone has a kind of vision of what political correctness means, but could you maybe define political correctness uh, and why you think it's worthy of this kind of theoretical interpretation? Yeah. um, Well, first off, and I always find this odd because there's a couple of times where I've spoken about the book and I do, rather than speaking about my book, I go straight to talking about Alenka Shapanjit's great uh, book on comedy, the odd one in, and it was, it was purely from reading that, um, uh, that book in particular I then started to get sort of these ideas around uh, around comedy and how comedy could be used in a subversive way to perhaps uh, in a sort of, you know, to, to challenge dominant ideologies um, or, for example, to challenge something such as political correctness. And I think one of the things I think that was interesting about political correctness, I'd done research before on sort of race and racism and multiculturalism. Um, and there seemed to be there seemed to be a particular period. I'm thinking about a sort of I must have, I think it was around 2017 where you had certain comedians like Louis C.K., um, you know, who was who who for rightly or wrongly, I would have probably called a subversive comedian before, obviously, you know, his, his sexual harassment um, sort of scandal came out. And then there was other instances. I start the book talking about an instant about uh, Constantin uh, Kissin, who's uh, uh, within the UK, who was meant to do a comic gig uh, uh, the, uh, in University of London uh, school at SOAS. Uh, but ended up having to sign some sort of behavioral agreement that said, don't, you know, you can't say anything that's, you know, transphobic, homophobic, racist or anything like that. And he sort of made quite a fuss about that appearing on television in the press that he refused to do the gig because he had to sign this sort of behavioral agreement. Um, So there seemed to be this sort of link between me sort of reading the book and then me sort of having these comic examples that were sort of going around at the time. And I suppose one of the things which drew me into political correctness was there was never really a definition specifically of what political correctness was. There seemed to be this history that it emerged. Um, it emerged predominantly from the left. I remember as an undergrad reading Stuart Hall had written sort of early essays and, and chapters as well on political correctness. Uh, and it was often seen as a sort of, it had this sort of ironic flavor to it that if you weren't following the party line, um, it, you know, you were being, or if you followed the party line too much, you were being politically correct. So it always had this link, in my opinion, to subversion. And the fact that it wasn't, very well defined. The fact that for me, what made political correctness quite interesting was that it could be used for both for opposing ends. I think really it could be used as something that the right wanted to use, but also something that the left wanted to use, which is why I started to focus on it. And I started to think more, more critically about how it had this sort of ideological function, I suppose. And naturally, you know, I've sort of drawn and had been using Zizek's work to explore that sort of ideological link there. 
Absolutely. So, I mean, Zizek obviously writes voluminously uh, on the topic of political correctness uh, and why the left should steer clear of it. But before we get into that, I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about why the political right in particular has transformed this into such a subject of almost manic discourse? Uh, and you refer to a couple of the figures uh, over the course of your book, people like Jordan Peterson, right, who kind of came to the forefront uh, of political culture right there wrongly uh, by attacking PC, uh, by talking about you know, how social justice was a big danger. Why is it that the political right is so fixated on these things? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's because they take the it, it takes the ball completely out of the left's hands. I think what they're very good, the political right, is if you make it about culture, if you make it about identity, then you're, you're always locked in this 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 battle between the particulars, between, uh, you know, between the various multitude of ways that your identity can be split up into, you know, being a, 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 a white heterosexual man versus a disabled black woman. You know what I mean? You know. And I think the, what the right's really good at is when it when it makes that the, ter the, the terrain of the debate, uh, then then the left's never got to win because I think you get into this sort of fight where you're having to protect and make the argument for your political identity. Uh, you're having to fight your corner, so to speak, rather than looking towards perhaps more universal uh, arguments that could be made or sort of or, or plans plans there. So I think it it favors you know it favors. Um, it favours the right. I mean, Jordan Peterson is such an odd example in, in all those contexts because it seems I don't I don't know what happened there, you know, because Jordan Peterson wasn't an academic on political correctness or any sort of cultural issues. I mean, this was I mean, I mean, I don't know. His, I don't know his academic background that well. I think I've spoken to one person actually who studied at the university he teaches at and attended one of his lectures. And it was essentially all about myth, wasn't it, if I'm quite right. His original, you know, the power of myth and the way in which myths and fan sort of fantasies work within uh, within culture, and it seems to be that one YouTube video where he's arguing with the with the student about the is it a toilet or the cisgender, and and af off the back of that, he then became this figurehead mm -hmm. for this sort of you know call it alt right or um, yeah what, what as, as you know this sort of dissonant against any form of council culture or, or political correctness. Um, and I suppose, yeah, he's capitalized on that quite well, I suppose. In recent yeah, well, Matt, you wrote, Matt actually wrote a book for Zero Books on uh, on it. And I don't know if, uh, yeah, like you you spent, you actually did the, spent a lot of time reading his academic work, eh, Matt? Uh, yeah, more time than anyone should spend. Um, so I, I don't want to make this about Peterson, but he kind of has this argument. You can call it like a Jungian argument. Uh, I think that's also doing a bit of a discredit to Jung. Uh, but basically the idea is that, you know, Society is defined by this balance between order and chaos, right? Archetypal order and archetypal chaos. Uh, and the best kind of society is one that achieves a kind of harmony between the two. And he feels that we've been shifting too far towards chaos, uh, which he associates for very ambiguous reasons with the political left, right? The striving for equality, emancipation from tradition. Uh, and political correctness is symptomatic uh, of that, along with a variety of other cultural ills, right? So that's putting it in the Coles notes, right? Uh, it's actually a shame, I think, because one of the things that I was interested in seeing with his debate with uh, Slavoj Žižek uh, was going to be this kind of right psychoanalytic versus left psychoanalytic take. Uh, I was really hoping for that, right? Uh, since a lot of people I know are still very attracted to Jung, but they never really emerged. Instead, they just kind of talk past each other uh, about bad readings of the Communist Manifesto and nothing really substantial came from it. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean... Well, I, I just, I mean, that to me, I mean, that was just, there was no preparation there from Jordan Peterson, um, mm. I think, on his behalf. I think I, I would definitely sort of, naturally, I would have, you know, after using his work, but I think what Zizek did there was he tried to set the terms of the debate, which I think is the only thing you could do. It's hard to argue Jordan Peterson because he's such a brilliant uh, 
you know, in our, you know, he's very good presenting, isn't he? I think, I oh, think it's like an order. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I've had, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've had first year students who are like, we sort of come up and we'll give you this idea of this video that they've watched of Jordan Peterson online. You're like, Oh Christ almighty. And you have to like chip away at that a bit. But, um, but it's because he presents it in such a way, that sort of matter of fact, common sense sort of way where you think, well, perhaps there's something in it. And I think, yeah, I think what GJ was very good. He made it. I mean, I think he called him out on a couple of occasions, didn't he? Because, you know, Jordan Peterson was just reciting the most rehashed general criticisms, wasn't he, of Marxism and the Communist Manifesto. And I think there were points where you said, well, where, where, who are these people then who are? Yeah, yeah, that was um, definitely a good moment. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah. And I think that was, I think that was the key bit of that debate. Yeah. I mean, that was, yeah, the whole thing was odd though, that debate I always find, didn't you? I mean, it was such a weird moment. I couldn't believe that we yeah. had the debate. I mean, especially in the UK, we get nothing like that in the UK, like two academics. <laughs> like, I mean, there's, there's the constantly rehashed video, isn't there, of Chomsky and Foucault debating in French. And, yeah. and, and I, just, I just think to myself, what reality was this, this world where academics yeah. could debate on television? But um, I mean, I know that, yeah. Well, it was super popular in Toronto. I mean, people have pointed out that it was more expensive and more difficult to get tickets to that debate than it was to get Maple Leaf tickets, uh, which is quite something if you know the Toronto Maple Leafs, because even though they're a shitty team, uh, they are popular. <laughs> yeah, it was expensive by the end. Uh, yeah, I actually was there, but I got tickets pretty early with my friend and they were like, I don't know, I think they were like $35. So still like kind of expensive to watch academics debate. But by the end, I remember one of my professor friends, I was like, oh, you should come. He tried to get tickets. And by that point, they were up to like $300, $400. It was crazy. That's mad. I mean, what was it like there in the debate? I don't know. I, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, I was up in the nosebleed section. It's like kind of a big, a big like theater. And I remember no, like feeling it was interesting being in line, like speculating about like, okay, who's like, who's the Peterson bro? Who who are the Zizek bros here? Like, and I was trying to figure it out. And like, sometimes it was hard to tell. And like, you could, it was interesting to be around in certain moments. Some people would cheer and then you could tell like they were more for, for Peterson. And then I think, and I was like, at one point, I think someone yelled, during Peterson's uh, like little, I think undergrad level presentation on the Communist Manifesto, like it's a fucking pamphlet, bro. Like, why are you taking it so seriously? And I think he got kicked out. Actually, I think he got he got like escorted out of uh, by, by security. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. Well, this actually is a good, kind of a good segue to the next question that I wanted to ask you. And then I know Victor uh, has something that he's really pressing. Um, but one of the things that I think Peterson and people like Charlie Kirk, for example, have really been able to capitalize on uh, is the sense of being contrarian or counterculture, which is ironic when you think that they're pretty stodgy conservative people, right? You know, traditional values, traditional gender roles and stuff. Uh, and the reason they're able to present this way uh, is in part because they're able to claim that the problem with PC is that it's neutered, safe, uh, kind of authoritarian Um not directly authoritarian in the sense that the state is kind of uh, operating to suppress speech, but social pressure is kind of being applied to suppress speech. Uh, and that's really kind of ironic, I think, because, of course, we would usually associate this kind of contrary and countercultural attitude with the political left. Uh, and yet political correctness is so associated with progressive activism. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about this really strange tension uh, and why it is that you think the political right uh, has been able to present itself uh, as a kind of countercultural movement in response to these kind of developments? Yeah, that's good. That's a really interesting question. I think, I think, I think it's the fact that I would always come back to it. It's very similar to what, you know, I was, I was suggesting before. I think, I think you'll always win the, the particular argument. So if you need to start vouching for a particular side, then 
then you're going to win that because people enjoy their identity, so to speak, don't they? They enjoy, you know, where right. they're from or what they rep- uh, what they represent. And I think one of the things that, you know, someone like Peterson's very good. I mean, it's it, to me to, to, to boil it down, it's self-help. Essentially, that's that's essentially what I think Jordan Peterson is. So I think he gives, you know, during a period of the decline of symbolic efficiency, you know, or, you know, the symbolic order, the big other, you know, God doesn't exist. I think someone like Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, if, if you're associating with him, the with, with him as being on the right, so to speak, I mean, it'd be interesting. I don't know if he would even admit to being on. I don't I think that's that, that might He's be recently uh, basically become overt about the fact that he embraces a kind of conservatism in his latest book, the Beyond Order one. Um, he said, you know, to the extent I'm a conservative, it's because I support, you know, slow incremental change, kind of a, a mild reverence for tradition, kind of ordered liberty, uh, if you think about like the Anglo-American tradition. Okay. So, I mean, so that's interesting. So I think, I think the fact what he makes, what he sort of is able to support there is this, 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 this focus on the particular, this focus on the order, taking that, as you said there, that, uh, that, that sort of conservative line. But I think, I think as well, I think, and I think this isn't it the most recent book. And I think that, that, that focus there on particularities is drawn out. I haven't read the most recent book. I've just read reviews and whatnot of it. I mean, I think it's a turn to phenomenology, isn't it? And I say, you know, I say that in, in quotes, I think he's drawing, a, he's gone and, I'm, you're not, I'm not surprised by that. You know, I'm not surprised he's ended up with phenomenology when he makes this argument for the particular. Well, well I'm also thinking of um, Paul Joseph Watson, right? Back in, I think it was 2016, around the time when the Trumpists were really gaining uh, traction, he had a shirt made that said, conservatism is the new counterculture, right? Uh, which is ridiculous. And, you know, I also was personally offended by the fact that he would invoke people like Kurt Cobain by saying, you know, there's no great bands like Nirvana anymore. And I'm like, fucking... Kirk Cobain was the biggest feminist, hugely supportive of LGBTQ rights, you name it, right? I mean, he's fucking rolling around in his grave <laughs> right now. But, you know, it did have a certain kind of traction uh, with an audience, right, that felt that they were being marginalized by a PC culture uh, and that to resist it had this kind of punk quality to it. Um, and I personally thought this was ridiculous, but... Well, and also, isn't it, like, to fit it with the comedy theme, too, I feel like, isn't it the case that also, I think, conservatives sometimes will, like, point to the comedy case of, like, PC trying to, like, shut down certain kinds as, like, look at how uptight they are, right? Like, they don't even want to laugh, right? And it's like, we're the ones who want to make space for subversive culture, because we want to allow for these things. It's like the lefties who are trying to shut all these things down. So that's kind of fits in with this narrative that conservatives have lately been trying to develop that lets, like, we're the place for the counterculture. We're willing to laugh. It's like, the others are all stiff and serious right yeah no definitely and i think i mean you know again, you know just to draw it back the, the less struggles because i think and I, I i i think i draw particularly here from the work of sort of todd mcgowan and his sort of work on universality right. and partic- and, and, the, and its relation to the particular and the singular universal and for me i just the left just struggles if on fighting that terrain when it becomes about your you know i can be the subversive one i mean that was kind of this is what you get when we have it a lot in the UK. I think it was announced this week on Monday that John Cleese will be doing a documentary on Channel 4, a public service broadcaster in the UK, um, on cancel culture and woke culture. And I think he's someone who, you know, the craziness of that, I mean, this was this was the Monty Python fella who was, you know, their comedy was all about the formal subversion of figures of authority um, uh, and what, you know, the Catholic Church and everything. And now they just sort of become these angry old men who are just ups- well maybe well they're upset aren't they about being cancelled and they're not having the right or the freedom to speak <laughs> while hosting your own documentary right <laughs> on a yeah. public so- and that was the point i tried to make about constant kissing in the book constantine kissing in the book is that um you know this was a man who was whinging that he couldn't do his set 
due to this behavioral agreement, but then managed to get on all like the morning TV shows and managed to write in the Daily Mail, you know, frighteningly the most read newspaper in the UK, you know, was able to then use it as the linchpin for his subsequent tour. Um, so I think, yeah. I think there's, it sells, I think, if you, if you go down that line of, of yeah. Totally. I'm, I'm curious if, and I think kind of Matt earlier was, we were talking about like defining political correctness. And I was curious if you, like how you distinguish it. Cause I think there's like maybe a commonsensical definition that like, you know, non-academics will think about political correctness vaguely, at least, you know, I think if you question them, they probably won't be able to give a coherent cause it is one of those strange categories, but then there's this category wokeness and it's like, I you know, know like, I don't know. Talk about non-academics. That's kind of exclusionary. Okay. I think we should be <laughs> wary of using that kind of language. Right. Um, but I guess I'm curious, like, how do you see that? Like, do you do you kind of have a, a a distinction or a line, or do you kind of think that they're words for the same phenomenon? I don't know. So, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's good. I think I think this is what we're sort of getting. At. I think this is, and it's a wonderful, it's a brilliant question to start with because I, I talk about the various definitions of, of of political correctness in the book, and I, I I didn't want it to be a book about essentially just nothing but political correctness. But in the opening chapters, I do look at sort of briefly where the term came from and how it has this. Uh, this sort of ideological sort of pertinence to it, where it can be used by both the left and the right. But what I sort of came to towards the end of the book was, you know, perhaps the fact that it can be used in all these various different ways and it might not have a clear definition is something that can make it, is something that can make political correctness comically subversive. So is it a term that in its own ridiculousness could be pushed and performed in such a way that it ends up being ridiculous and, and daft in, in, in that in that respect? And I think... I think that's something I looked more towards uh, the end of the book, this idea that, um, you know, not to be not to be against political correctness in such a way that oh, political correctness is rubbish. You know, don't don't follow. You know, it's, it's mad because then you end up then you end up on Jordan Peterson's side. But in a way where you could perhaps are is there jokes? Are there comedy sequences? Are there scenes that we could perhaps use where political correctness gets played out to the point where its own inconsistencies are laid bare? And that might be something that that, that, is, that is comical. It's something that, you know, perhaps, you know, comedians such as Monty Python did particularly well in the past and, and in other forms as well. So I think I think if, it, if it's anything, you know, I, I talk about at the end, I say, you know, in theory, yes, but in practice, no. Yeah, in theory, it works. But in practice, no, let's never have political correctness because it, yeah, let's constantly let it fail in that regard. Actually, that's a fantastic segue to the, one of the big questions that I had for you, which is uh, you had a really great analysis uh, of what constitutes conservative comedy and what constitutes, um, I suppose you could call it radical uh, or left comedy. Uh, and you described this uh, using kind of a Hegelian language where you just say that conservative comedy always tries to reaffirm the connection between the universal and the particular. If you think about somebody like the king, right? Uh, and every now and then it kind of mocks that or subverts it a little bit, but it's always affirmed at the end, right? Whereas radical comedy or left-wing comedy tries to detach very fundamentally the universal from the particular, right? Uh, so the kind of joke at the end of, say, a kind of diatribe against the king is that the king still thinks he's a king uh, at the end of it, right? Whereas conservative comedy would say, the king is just a normal man like you, but he's still in charge, right? So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe give an example of somebody who was a talented left-wing comedian, right? Somebody who was able to engage in this probably unconsciously Hegelian project of deconstructing authority. And actually, just quickly, I'm curious, is that also the where the true comedy versus false comedy comes in? Is that the language? Yes. Yeah, so that's, so this is, again, this is, this is uh, Alenka Shapanjit's um, uh, definition there of, of 
of distinguishing between what is true comedy and, and what is false comedy. So the key bit to remember there is, is the sense that in, in false, false comedy, you know, she argues, and as I look and as I explore a bit further in the book, is this is, is conservative comedy. What it does is it keeps the universal and the particular apart. OK, so um, she uses the example um, of, of the Baron, the toffee nosed Baron who slips in the puddle, slips on the banana peel uh, and he falls. He falls into the puddle of water and we all laugh at him because he's a Baron, but he's just like us. He's human type thing. So what? It, but he still he gets up and he continues to be the Baron. So it's that I think that's what you were getting that um, uh, Matthew with regards. And I th for me, examples of that, I, I um, one of the examples I draw upon in the book is and this was interesting because, again, I was drawing, I was using upon, you know, the same the same writers and the same comedian was this is that to me would just underpin uh, Ricky Gervais's extras, where essentially what he was doing right. was he was getting notable celebrities to come onto the show and perform exaggerated versions of themselves. But you're meant to sort of you're not laughing at celebrity or you're not laughing at someone, uh, say, Chris Martin, obviously the, the lead singer of Coldplay. You're laughing at the performance of Chris Martin playing Chris Chris Martin. So you get this separation there between the two, which is which is, everyone is Patrick Stewart, I should say. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick Stewart being a good yeah, being a good example there. So they just they play like these sort of crazy versions of themselves and then they can carry on. It's like you know, I say in the book, you know, Chris Martin can leave, can literally leave the studio after filming his extra scene and carry on being Chris Martin. But what's particular I think what's what's phenomenal what's brilliant in, in Zapanjik's argument is she say uh, true comedy is when or the way I interpreted it and the way I read it was true comedy is when the universal is shown to be inconsistent through a particular concrete example. So it's not the it's not the fact that the Baron slips in the puddle and he's just like every other human on the planet. It's the fact that he gets up and still believes himself to be a Baron, which is really which, which is the comedy. So we're laughing at his presumptuousness in that regard. We're laughing at the title of Baron. So there's this sort of, and she uses Hegel's concrete universal just to draw that out. And it's something I do in the book. But I think that's really interesting because to me, what that, that started to get me thinking along the lines of this idea of can comedy be subversive? In what ways can universals be concretized in such a way where their own ridiculousness is laid bare? And I suppose, I mean, there's, there's, there's you know, plenty of political examples. We've got Boris Johnson in the UK. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that always got me a little bit about, you know, criticisms of Donald Trump was that it was always Donald Trump besmirching the office. You know, you know, this man's the leader of the free world. He's the president of the United States. And I was like, well, no, does this not show the ridiculousness of the president of, of the presidency now in contemporary, you know, United States? The sense that, you know, it's the system that gave that ended up we ended up with him through the system. It might be the system that's broken if you end up with someone like Donald Trump at the end of it. So rather than show, so it kept it separate, it kept the title president and Donald Trump separate rather than show actually what Donald Trump did was play out the, the ridiculousness of presidency in its, in, its, in, its, in its title. And I think there's, there's some good examples. I think um, Sasha Baron Cohen, I think it's quite good at times at playing Most, out. Yeah. yeah, those, I think Borat, Borat in particular, I think there's very, I think there's versions of Baron Cohen. I thought, I found I thought his most recent Borat film was 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 really good to be honest with you. Um, in playing, you know, you know, in performing that ridiculousness, he seemed to take things to, you know, to their logical conclusion where you're left laughing because you see how ridiculous something is. Um, I think we have a comedian in the UK called Stuart Lee, um, who I could have I could have completely and utterly written the book about Stuart Lee and his formal comedy. Um, 
there was a phenomenal paper um, which I which I cite in the book, which had already essentially done that. So I left it out. But what Stuart Lee's very good at, and you can see his clips um, on YouTube and whatnot, is that his comedy is is in explaining the joke. So explaining what it's weird. The, the joke is itself his explanation of the joke and why you find it funny. So you end up <laughs> through this sort of puzzle where at the end you're laughing at something for its ridiculousness. So I think he's a great example of somebody who perhaps performs this sort of this true comedy, this concrete universal. Um, yeah, I just I draw upon I, I I provide my own barren example in the book with a reference to a famous scene from, you know, perhaps the most popular U, uh, comedy in the UK would be Only Fools and Horses, where um, uh, yeah, so I, I talk about that in the book a bit more. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the kind of points that you make about comedy reminded me of a comment Lacan made, which itself was kind of a joke, where he said. Uh, if a man who thinks he is king is insane, uh, then the king who thinks he is a king is no less so, right? Uh, this kind of idea that Fantasia is a power, right? Uh, and needing to recognize the contingency of all of them. But I, I think what you said about Donald Trump is something that I really agree with, right? Uh, I remember back, I think it was in 2018, uh, when he brought McDonald's into the White House uh, and all kinds of so-called radical and liberal commentators were saying things like, this is ridiculous. He's undermining the dignity of the office. He's transforming the presidency into this kind of clownish enterprise. Uh, and what I want to say is like, no, I mean, in some senses, the most radical thing we want to, we could do is precisely to say there is no dignity to this office, right? Uh, he's operating as an imperial hegemon over the course, over the globe. Uh, and what we want to be doing is consistently subverting this. Uh, but I don't think that's what Trump was doing by bringing in things like McDonald's. I think he was playing out to exactly the kind of demographic you were talking about by saying, look, I'm just like you, but I'm also the president, right? So now you can fantasize about what it'd be like to wield the kind of power and have the kind of authority I do and project those kinds of impulses into me. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a thin line. I mean, there is literally a picture, isn't there, of him stood in front of all the McDonald's uh, big well, McDonald's I've ever seen, yeah. Yeah, and you've got that. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, the film Richie Rich because he has a McDonald's, oh, yeah. doesn't he? And he's and it's like I'm, you know, being young, I'm thinking, oh, I'd love to have a McDonald's in my hat. But uh, so there is a comedy to it, and I think it's a thin line because, like you said, I think that appeals that has that popular appeal that sort of oh, I look, you know, man of the people getting in McDonald's, you know, getting you know the great American fast food restaurant, uh, getting yeah. them in to save the day type thing. But it's, I think, the interesting bit there is 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 as I said, this thin line is between finding that funny, but then as you write, you know, as you said there, or finding the whole, the whole performance itself ridiculous to the point where he's actually playing out that, that ridiculousness. Um, I think that's something, yeah. I mean, I think that's essentially, I mean, it got him nothing but grief, did it? But I think that was kind of, you know, that was Zizek's point, isn't it? When he, when he did that, when he made that comment, didn't he, about why he'd vote for, for Trump, because I said, you know, what, what does Trump do if not bring to bear the ridiculousness of liberal, you know, He's a product of that system in that sense. Yeah, this is um actually this is reminding me, and maybe I'm, I'm going to take the opportunity to. I some I've often made this argument a couple times, maybe in the podcast when we talk about um, um well actually like the monarchy in Canada because we're Canadians and like and like there's a lot of people are like why do we why do why bother with the monarchy and I sometimes make this kind of argument that that and what Matt was saying before reminded me um that I sometimes argue that maybe there's some kind of like a uh, helpful effect that having the monarchy where it's because somehow I think like having this symbolic figure and I wonder if it's similar in the UK that like kind of takes or like somehow pulls away like the mystique from the office of the prime minister because it's all isolated in this like symbolic figurehead and it's like I'm glad we have this the the figurehead who is supposedly a head of state doesn't actually have any power 
But then like the person, the prime minister is just like a commoner in the House of Commons. And I feel like in the States, they're in this weird dilemma where like because they don't have a symbolic figurehead, they end up investing the person who actually has the power with all this fantasy that I feel like somehow need not be there. It's like, no, it would be ridiculous in Canada. I'm guessing in the UK to be like, respect the office of the prime minister. It's like, who cares? It's like, it's like not really a thing. And I think that that's why I'm sometimes argue with other Canadians. It's good to keep the monarchy. It's like it has, it's useful. It's, um, I think, I mean, that, that's how I always interpreted Hegel's concept of, of the monarch and the fact that it, it shows. Yeah. I think it plays out the, the paradoxes of the state. It all becomes, as you quite rightly said, this symbolic figure embodies the inconsistency so to speak it's interesting because i've i, I i'm i'm a republican you know i don't i don't want monarchy <laughs> or anything but this okay, is I think what you're getting at victor like you end up in this like awkward situation where actually i i you know i love at the minute harry and Meghan, mark purely for the fact that they are just showing up the royal family and the ridiculousness of that family and the cruelty of that sure. family and all the nonsense, you know, with Prince Andrew and everything going on at the same time. It's almost like... Did you, know, you ever see the uh, Get Out poster, the meme for that? No, no, the, no. Oh, you know the the, the movie with uh, the, the, the Peel, Jordan Peele's movie, Get Out? Yeah, Get Out. So they replaced uh, all the characters in that. So it's Meghan Markle, who's the person who's running away from the family. And then it's just all the white royal family like staring at her honestly you know that's brilliant right yeah okay yeah i mean it's not brilliant for poor megan but yeah but there's that's interesting yeah i mean i mean that's and but that's you end up in this awful conundrum where i'm a bit like i'm all i suddenly now become pro monarchy with megan and harry purely on the basis that they get to just show up the royal family it's an odd one it's not yeah who knows who knows they 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 hold on by their fingernails the royal family purely for the queen i think when she goes when she dies, I mean, one's down, isn't he? The husband's gone. So, yeah, 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 I don't know. I think when she goes, I think there'll be big, 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 big changes. It's probably true. It's, it's probably true. But yeah, it's just I hate the way like in America, though, I just don't like how there's all this symbolic investment. It's like the person who actually has the power. He has this like almost royal, like the office of the president has this like royal feature to it that like is in people's psyche. And I feel like that's actually like maybe bad somehow to like. Well, I, I mean, it's a brilliant example because we often like when people talk about republic. If you if you made the argument for republicanism in the UK, people go, "Oh, what do you want then? A president like the US? Like as if that's it, that's immediately right, that's worse." True. Considered yeah. worse. And they go, and people go, because then we'd end up with Tony Blair as president or something or other, or <laughs> you know what I mean? Or it'd end up like I don't know, someone, some public figure like Stephen Fry or something or other. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But they're not great examples. So you also you sort of end up going, "Well, actually, no, we don't want that type thing." So perhaps. Yeah. having an old woman <laughs> <laughs> a clownish family at the top who has no real power just uh let them let them let them let them absorb the like uh whatever the i don't exactly know how to like the term to use but like the kind of symbolic investment away from the person who actually has the power yeah or, or embody the ridiculousness of having exactly. a nation state headed by i think and i think you know perhaps there's a safety valve there or something or other <laughs> you know the you know the, the silliness yeah. of it and it's no, it's awful because yeah. that comes with obviously all the awfulness of, of a monarchy and the history they yeah. embody. But perhaps there's yeah, no so I, spaces that can be opened up. I don't know. Yeah, sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, so I wanted to ask too, like uh, the sort of critique of political correctness. I mean, so I think in, at one point in the book, it's it's described as like you know, it's like a safeguarding approach, um, and it, and it, and you say it functions to to undermine any real capital R relationship. <clears throat> and um, I wonder if you could talk about 
like how that what you mean by capital R real relationships and sort of like how you see political correctness um, as interfering with that ability. And I think it relates to something, you know, we were talking about earlier with like real comedy um, as revealing something. And I guess like somehow maybe uh, it seems like you're arguing that political correctness um, prevents that possibility, I suppose, or it can. It risks preventing that possibility. It's often it's a bit like, you know, like you might have pet name, you know, the people that you know, the the people that know you best or the closest will have certain pet names for you that, you know, if your partner was to use, that's okay. And it might refer to, I don't know, and, and particularly idiosyncrasy about yourself, something you might've done in the past. But if for instance, a stranger was to come up to say to it, you'd be a bit like, oh God, you know, you're a bit, you're getting a bit too close, that sort of thing. So I think what I was getting at there with this sort of real contact is often I believe that it can be through telling a dirty joke or through comedy that might, on the face of it seem quite um, uh, illicit or, or, or wrong to even say that actually you make the truest connection uh, with, with individuals. And particularly, you know, particularly with, you know, different, you know, perhaps people from different cultural backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds as well. And I think, I think that's what I was getting at there with that sort of real, uh, that, that sort of real contact. It's that idea. I always like that quote. It, it was, um, uh, I think that Zizek used about, uh, from George Orwell, he says that, you know, if I want to make, you know, I can't just I can't just pack, pat a proletarian on the back and say, yeah, come on, let's have the socialist revolution. I've actually probably got to engage in a process and, and with someone that's going to take a lot of work, if you know what I mean. And I think that's what I was getting at there with this sort of real contact. It's yeah, it's where it's where does it lie? <laughs> it's where do those boundaries lie sort of thing. And I think this is really interesting because you, you asked me at the start, where did, you know, where did some of these ideas come from for the book? And I can only ever come back to one example, um, uh, which was with, which was with a colleague I worked. So I start when I started at my institution, I mean, this, this is in itself an example, which I think brings everything that, together, which we've been talking about here. But when I started at uh, my university, I had um, to that point in my life as well. So when I started there, I think it was 24, 25, I'd had one black manager. And what was interesting was obviously I'd had this week of, of starting at my institution. You, you're introduced to numerous managers. You can't remember any of their names by the end of it. And a lot of the managers, very white, middle class, would say to me, have you met, have you met this particular manager? And I'd be like, oh, oh, which, sorry, which one is that? And they'd be a black fella. And it'd always, <laughs> it would always be whispered. They'd touch their face and it'd be whispered. And then I was, and then a couple of months later, I was, we'd gone out for a drink after work and he was in the pub and I remember it must have been because I'd had a drink. I don't know. But I told him, I told him this joke. I said to him, I said, you know, it was hilarious. And because what I ended up doing was I deliberately started to say I couldn't remember who this person was, just so I could make a lot of these people feel uncomfortable by saying uh, he's the black fella. So I told him this joke and he turned around to me and I was nervous when I said it, but he turned around to me and said, what I usually say to that, Jack, is if you think I'm black, wait till you see my arsehole. <laughs> and it was just, it was tough. You know, we've probably been, you know, can imagine if we'd said that in a departmental meeting, you know, there'd, there'd have been uproar, but we got on famously after that, you know, and there was something about, I don't know, that, so it, it was trying to articulate that in, in, in the book, I think, which was, and, and again, I think Zizek's paradigm, Zizek's work was the only thing that allowed me to sort of explore yeah. that, I think. It's, it's that real contact, it's the, it's the dirty jokes you share with, with people that are yeah. where real I connection lies. And that, that reminds me, I think in, in your book too, you talk about, and, and this is something, I mean, I, all of us actually on the podcast are, are fans of Zizek and I think she like share, share, share this kind of, this kind of view of like, um, that he's offering something, um, 
important that no other academics talk about. Um, but like one of the things I think is um, this idea that I guess like all social interaction involves some kind of risk of putting yourself up out there. And it seems like um, you were saying that political correctness in some ways is an effort to try to like eliminate this risk, which ends up kind of being self-defeating. And it's like, and it's like, I think that maybe the the purpose or that you're trying to get at is like, we have to realize, reckon with that, that there's always going to be some sort of risk involved in our social interactions. And it's like, I guess this kind of subversive comedy, um, can can bring that to the light in in a in like a constructive intersubjectively connective way where we can connect better with each other and it also reminds me and i think you bring it up in the book too like the classic uh Zizek, uh shtick that he has about like seduction right it's like that that it's like it's always a trend it always involves a transgression or the possibility of transgression that then gets retroactively described as either like a harassment or successful seduction and not that you know, we want to reduce uh, seduction to being like pure transgression, but there just is, there, it just is the fact that there's always a risk that it's going to be taken up in this way. And I think similarly, like your joke to your colleague could have been taken up uh, and you just kind of had to take the leap and, and, and see what happened. Definitely. And, def and I think, yeah, I mean, it's that idea that you make a pass and is you're either, you're either going to be seen as a creep for making the pass or it's going to be reciprocated and retroactively everything was good and everything was fine. But I totally, and I think there was a formal significance there in our day-to-day -day interactions that sort of, and you know, moving away from that sort of risk being regulated towards telling a joke. Like, you know what I mean? You tell, you know, I am denied whether or not I should use that example there of, 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 of the colleague at work. You know, when we tell a joke, and I think it was really interesting, there was, um, uh, there's a, a, a book on Zizek and performance where the author in there is a stand-up comedian. And he says, like, you stand up in front of this room You've got all the lights on you. You often can't see the crowd. So you're talking into like an abyss and you're taking this leap of faith when you tell a joke because that joke might not be funny or people in the room might not get it. Um, and I think I think there's a there's a formal link there between comedy, the actual telling of a joke uh, and the risk involved in taking a joke, something that can be played with and hopefully made fun of, but also the risk there that's involved in 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 every interaction we have. Um, well, I, I want to actually broaden the discussion a little bit because... This is something I've always wanted to ask an expert. So conveniently enough, here you are, uh, and I can ask it. So going back to like elementary school, which is how far back we have to go. Uh, I remember one of my English teachers said, well, the difference between comedy and tragedy is that tragedy, bad things happen at the end. You know, you think of Hamlet, everyone's dead. Comedy, it ends up, you know, everyone's fine. Uh, that doesn't really seem like a very satisfying definition to me, though. Um, and one of the things that occurred to me is that Tragedy has been very theorized on, and there are a million different definitions of it, you know, from well, tragedy reflects on life suffering to tragedy is about the despair that one feels about having to be oneself when one wants to be another person, millions of definitions. But it's really hard for me to think of a good definition of comedy, uh, in part because it's really hard for me to even think about what makes something funny, right? You just kind of instinctively know uh, what's funny. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of different reasons for that. So can you tell us what is comedy exactly? And why do you think people laugh? What what do they find funny or what makes something funny? Yeah, that's that's good. That's interesting. I think to me, it's when, to me, it's, it, I, I, again, and I think this is, you know, I'm drawn upon, I think what I'm about to say, Zupanjit sits behind it. It's when, it's when something's shown to be inconsistent. It's when, it's when you're it's when something is taken to a uh, a logical conclusion where you don't es you don't end up with anything new you don't end up with anything gained apart from the fact that what you thought you were going to see has been reversed or or returned to 
or you might have just received the same thing. And that's probably not too clear in the way I'm necessarily explaining that. But I think it's that it's not necessarily incongruity. I talk about incongruity in the book. And I think that's, that's quite a common, uh, particularly within the study of comedy, that, that comedy is this incongruity, that it's when something is in, it's, 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 it's like where something is where it shouldn't be type thing. Um, uh, Todd McGowan in his book talks about it being the sort of, um, the sort of meeting, the dialectical meeting of, of a lack with an excess. Um, and he has sort of plenty of examples there. So he talks quite brilliantly about uh, Hannibal Lecter. You can actually find Hannibal Lecter quite funny because his jokes are excessively based on death. So it's the lack, you know, the, and death. So it's the meeting of those two. But for me, it's when it's when something that you might take for common, common sense or taken for granted is shown to be played out and be inconsistent. So comedy is a bit like, have you ever... Like, it's a bit like, you know, when you, you know, when you're like, you're walking along a path and like you meet and you go right and they go right. And then you go left and they go left and you end up in this weird sort of yeah. tension with some. I mean, to me, that that would be the naturalness that you get there. The gut Because all you can do there is look at the other person and laugh, can't you? You know what I mean? Because <laughs> yeah. you're, you're stuck in this ridiculous situation. And I think I think it's when something's made concrete. I mean, again, that's where I come back to this, this use of Hegel's concrete universal is. Yeah, I think, and I think that's what that's what good comedy does. I think. Well, why, why do we find different things funny though? And this is something that's always perplexed me. So, you know, back in the day when I was fucking whatever it was, five years old, I watched Bugs Bunny cartoons where most of the shit is about slapstick. And Jujak talks about you know things like you know the coyote runs out across a cliff, and it really reflects what you're talking about, right? There's this inconsistency because he seems to be able to transcend gravity until he realizes what he's doing after which he falls, and that's funny. But then you go on to the other end of the spectrum and you can think of things like very highbrow comedy, right? Uh, think about something like, um, oh, I don't know, you know, Ricky Gervais, you know, commenting on sociopolitical issues. Uh, or like you said, Louis C.K. ruminating on existentialism and death and nihilism in our culture and stuff. Very, very different kind of end of the spectrum. So why is it that the coyote falling down the cliff and breaking his nose or whatever is funny? Uh, and these ruminations about death at a very high level of sophistication are also amusing. What connects these two things beyond just the fact that there's an inconsistency in our expectations and what occurs? That's a wonderful question. That I, I would have to explore that in another book because I think that's a great uh, yeah to, to go from the sort of yeah the very the, the literal you know the, the comic there from the Hanna Barbera sort of uh, uh, I'm thinking as well. I'm trying. I'm trying to think. There's a connection there because they're both funny, but I think I would come back to the formal way in which they're being played out. To mm -hmm. me, I mean slapstick. I mean, slapstick can be funny, but I often wonder if slapstick follows a path of sort of irony or that sort of cynical resignation. I don't know if that's if that's something I would see the two. You know what I mean? You can you can laugh at the coyote because I don't know it's not you falling, if that makes sense. But perhaps yeah. the difference there is sort of uh, you know something that Louis C.K. might have done is you probably lived it a little bit, if you know what I mean. Um, which is why, you, as a child, you wouldn't find it funny. I'm trying to think of like typical sort of Louis C.K. jokes here. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I didn't, I remember when I was younger and, and Ricky Gervais, to use it, just use him as an example, I didn't find his stand-ups that funny. But I think the older I've got, I've seen clips of them and I've found them funny. And I remember watching them as, when I was younger and they, they weren't funny. So I suppose perhaps there's something there about experience or at least that way in which you might have experienced that particular inconsistency or impasse. I don't know. Um, yeah. It's a wonder, that's a phenomenal question. Because, like you said, it draws upon... It draws upon so much. It's like animation, I think, is quite good at performing that sort of 
perhaps that early. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and the reason I thought the when the first time this occurred to me was actually during my undergrad because um, I was reading some Socratic dialogue. It might have been like the Euthyphro or whatever. And, you know, I kind of having a hoity-toity laugh at how he was just like owning all these people. Like, <laughs> that's kind of clever, right? Uh, then I went out and had a couple beers with some friends of mine. And we ended up watching, I think it was like Trailer Park Boys. And it was just this long, long like joke about people getting really fucked up on on like booze and weed and stuff. And I thought it was hilarious. And I kind of was thinking to myself, like, I don't understand what makes, you know, this platonic dialogue funny. And then seeing Mr. Leahy and the trailer park boys get like really fucked up and like stumble down the stairs is also funny. There's something that connects these two things, but I'm just not sure what it is. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. That's, yeah. Go on. Sorry. It's a big, it's a, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated question. Yeah. Trailer Park Boys is Canadian show. I'm not sure if you guys got it in the UK or not, but uh, yeah, we get it on Netflix and what, yeah. I remember, yeah. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I've, I've seen that. Yeah. I've seen the clips of it and whatnot. Okay. Um, sure. Yeah. I wasn't sure. I'm trying to think of a sort of a UK equivalent, but yeah. Uh, is it mockumentary style if I'm right? Yes. It sort of, yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. Right. It is. Okay. Yeah. We have something, we have something called this country might be a bit similar, but I question those because as I said, I do wonder if sometimes, um, it's something I talk about in the book between this idea of uh, the distance, you know, this idea perhaps, you know, we are finding those those examples funny because, right, cynicism, irony, satire are all funny. They make you laugh, but I wouldn't call them subversive. I think I think that's why I would, you know, perhaps we're coming up with some sort of typology here where we would we would, you know, we would find something else funnier than, you know, than say those examples. But I think for me, what they're very good at is they create that distance between you and what you're seeing you can laugh at the silly trailer park person because they're being daft and stupid ha 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 and i, I think that's perhaps interesting that's that's a dynamic to it that we get this distance towards it um we have i think um uh someone who plays with that quite nicely is, is charlie brooker um oh yeah uh, yeah I, I, so yeah i'm always curious to know this like uh, i suppose you know it through black mirror i think it's been quite a world right yeah, I also lived in uh, Ireland for a year, uh, and the girl I was dating was British. So we ended up watching a lot of those Ricky Gervais shows. Uh, oh, good, right? Yeah. So, but Charlie Brooker. I mean, Charlie Brooker had a career way before, like obviously Black Mirror. I think he was a Guardian. Uh, he was he reviewed PlayStation games, I think, originally. But he had a, he had a show called Newswipe, and it was essentially where he just took he took the mick out of the news. But what he did quite well in that was he would perform the audience as part of as part of the show. So he would have these sort of little skits where it would cut to him sat on the sofa watching the news and he would perform, he would take it literally what the news was saying. And I think that was really interesting because he played there, I think with our own position, you know, where I'm talking there about having the distance to the coyote, you know, the coyote on screen falls off the mountain, so to speak. And we find that funny. Um, well, he played with that. So I think he performed us as audiences watching comedy. And, you know, you'll, there's clips of it on YouTube, no doubt. But perhaps there's something there in it as well, I think. Yeah. So um, I've got like a couple more questions, but I think I think Matt, uh, Matt needs to go. Uh, so we'll let him go. And then, Jack, if you don't mind, we can just finish up. I'll do a couple more. No, yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you for your questions, Matt. That was um, it's just lovely to speak about stuff. So, yeah, thank you for that and taking the time. Yeah, yeah, man. And best of luck with your next project, okay? Um, and thanks a lot for coming on. No worries. Uh, cool. Peace all right. All right. So um, I was wondering about, you say, and I think, you know, I come from a political theory perspective. Uh, so did Matt. And I think that, like, when I read books, I'm often, as a political theorist, like, looking for a kind of, like, nor nor normative recommendations, maybe not quite the right word, but I guess I was detecting sort of like, a, or at least 
a bit of a normative claim about like the value of comedy or um might be and and you could correct me if i'm wrong it's like that maybe it can help people realize i think i saw the language of a consciousness of contingency um if you recall that and i was wondering if you could talk about about uh, what role that plays and and what you mean by consciousness of contingency or maybe you might have been quoting someone at the time yeah. but um so i think so this idea of i've always read sort of you know any and again you know drawing upon here uh zizek sort of hegelianism particularly in the relationship between contingency and necessity but i think one of the things that what contingency brings to light is it is it shows that 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 relationship that every identity has with its non-identity so its own self in again to come back to this you know this inconsistency the gap in being you know uh, so to speak the sort of the dialectical materialism uh, that zizek draws upon so for me, when I was talking about contingency, is when something realizes something about itself that it hadn't previously seen or hadn't necessarily been aware of, if that makes sense. So it's, um, you know, so philosophically, it's the idea that the sort of the glass I'm drinking from is not a mug or a wine glass. And yet those things that it ain't or those things that it's not can form part of what it is type thing. So I think that's what I was getting at there. And I think. I just think that's something that comedy is really good. It's showing the ridiculousness, not just of our symbolic or, you know, our symbolic uh, you know, mandate, you know, the things we use in everyday uh, social interactions, not only showing them to be inconsistent and perhaps a little ridiculous, but also ourselves as well. And I think that's something played out in the example that I use in the book as well from the office is that it, you know, it's that, it's that realization that perhaps you have been a bit daft in following mm. that, that logic or, or in, that, in that respect, in that respect. So, and I think that those those have a certain sort of, um, you know, those moments perhaps have a contingency to them. I mean, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? The idea about, you know, one thing I've always found interested with stand-up comedians is like they will perform something for 18 months. Like, I suppose the contingency there comes from the the audiences that you're, you're doing it for, isn't it? But like, I suppose sometimes like real comedy, so it happens out of the blue, all of a sudden you've realized. And I think it's that that sort of conscious recognition um, yeah, it's really interesting because I, I, you know, I, I'm, I read that along the lines of, you know, Lacan's traversal of the fantasy, realizing, you know, that the ego ideal that you've been subscribed, you know, is a bit daft and a bit nonsense because, you know, that and I, that's that's where I, I suppose that's where I linked it with the subversive aspect. Um, in, in, yeah. in that regard. So it's interesting because I was when I was reading it, I, I sort of saw some parallel maybe between some of the stuff I've been working on in my dissertation right now, which I'm, I'm right now I'm reading the radical democratic theorists. And I think you cite Leclau and Mouffe uh, at one point in, in the book and and the other people like uh, like Ranciere and, and Butler and, and these other people. And I think that one of the things I've noticed <clears throat> is that um, when they talk about sort of like agonistic relations with our fellow citizens, they often have it premised on this idea that um, they people need to have some awareness of like the contingency of their beliefs and they can be very like um, spirited in fighting for their political perspective in agonistic relations, but they need to understand the contingency of their own beliefs um, versus the others. So that that way, like, you know, these relations don't devolve into antagonism. So they remain kind of agonistic or whatever. And I sort of saw a little bit of a parallel where, like, at least insofar as it seemed like what you were saying is like comedy kind of helps us can help us re reveal to us the sort of contingency and like the bullshit of like these self identities. But I guess like the trouble that I have with the radical Democrats and maybe the trouble that I also have with is like 
are regular people and in the case of radical democracy regular citizens like are they really understanding that right like or is it just us theorists who are kind of like drawing on with our theoretical apparatus <clears throat> and that's the trouble i have with the radical democrats it's like i actually think that like having that realization and that insight is actually quite hard uh it actually requires education to understand you know the contingency discursive contingency and all these things and it's like and i wonder whether like you know, comedy, they realize something, right? Because they laugh. And I was thinking earlier, based on the conversation we were having about like, what explains comedy? And it's like, it could be that maybe this background of like, the contingency uh, is like, actually part of what makes uh, people laugh. But I don't know. But do you think that it's, it's actually like, they're actually realizing that. And if they're not, I guess, maybe the like, more PC person would retort and be like, well, they might not, they're not even going to understand. It's not going to be subversive because they're not going to understand these insights. So I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful interpretation. It's, it's like you said, it, I think that's what I was getting, you know, the, the thin line here. And, and, um, and if you're going to, if you're going to tell a racist joke, what happens when it's just racist or what if when it's just perceived as racism, that's under which it can be. And obviously, you know, there are racist jokes, obviously. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I think it points and you're right to sort of point there to a more fundamental issue in the sense of how do you how do you how do you put that into some some form of program or process because it's a bit like you said you know you mentioned there Ranciere and Zizek's very common you know will very typically draw upon you know is is the part of no part when he talks there and it's something you know Todd McGowan talks about with regards to the singular universal but if it's outside like as soon as it becomes inside you know what I mean or if it redefines something new when does it just end up becoming what we had before type thing and I think it, you know, that to me would be a wonderful explanation of, of the sort of the fundamentalness of or the sort of fundamentality of, of contradiction. And that perhaps that's why I like the concrete universal, this fact, this sense that perhaps all you can do is at least make efforts to show the ridiculousness of something. It's a bit it comes out, I think, brilliantly through through something that I'm looking at at the minute in relation to nationalism and sport mm. that actually, you know, one thing everybody's very proud of you know nationalism is what you know pride in your country you know feeling an attachment to this collective but perhaps the truest form of nationalism is to actually find your country your country utterly ridiculous in all in all senses of the term and that it often it screws things up it gets things wrong um it's something you know it's sort of how i have to approach the english national football team in that you know Yes, we'll get to the final, but we're probably going to lose that final because this is England and football. It's the only way I can stomach that. But, but again, I think, like you see, I think that's what you're getting at there is how you turn that into some form of political program. I mean, it's a political, you know, it's a politics there of the negative. It's a politics of, uh, of, of, of something that perhaps, yeah, perhaps, perhaps you know, redefines the symbolic order. I suppose. Yeah, and I, and and I wonder whether or not it's also just like the the, the point about like that like maybe comedy is also just useful for what we were talking about before as just getting people more comfortable with the fact that there's always going to be risk involved in our social interactions and like that we have to be willing to take the leap otherwise we're not going to connect with each other or something like that like that seems like the the part that rather than consciousness well i mean maybe that is a form of consciousness of contingency right because it's like it's like the risk it's like i don't know maybe that's wrong but I think no. I think I think you're on the right. It's it, in some sense, and it it was something I was um, thinking about uh, earlier. And I, I, it's a theme. I think you know, particularly on the 
in the you know in psychoanalytic you know philosophical critical theory interpretations i think this is something that seems to be at the forefront of, of that school of thought at the minute this idea of avowing your enjoyment in something and then and then finding limitations to collective forms of limitation on that enjoyment i think is the the connection that needs to be made theoretically yeah. and, and practically and, and politically in that sense it was you know it's that idea i think some sometimes the hardest thing to do with a racist is to get them to admit that they enjoy their racism and you know and we see that actually in people that sort of you know always say I'm not a racist, but dot, 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 you know, I find this or whatnot. And it's, I think if you can avow, if you, if you bring to light the enjoyment at play, the undercurrent there of enjoyment that comes out through comedy, perhaps, then you can find ways around it or collective forms of, of limiting that in some sense. Um, yeah. 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 Cause like you said, are we just theorizing in the school of, uh, yeah. It's always a risk. I think when we get into high theory that, that uh, I think that's, that's, a, that's something we all deal with uh, as, as theorists. The beauty of the risk, though, practically, may be that it, retroactively it will never be a risk because it will redefine. I think that's, you know, what, what Badu gets at with the event. I think that's what Zizek is getting at there with, with his interpretation of the act, that a true act, you know, it's there what he means in the past. You know what I mean? When you make that pass, you know, when the, when the woman, you know, asks the man for his number or vice versa, you know, it becomes the start of the relationship when they're married so many years later. You know what I mean? It, it was the ultimate that redefined the logic. If it goes wrong, then... One of you yeah. creep for asking me for the number. Yeah, I suppose that's interesting. I mean, that's really interesting if we think of, you know, COVID. I don't know at the minute, you know, the complete utter failure to to politically do something with COVID. I think, yeah, I don't know if that connects yeah, yeah. or whatnot. Or earlier, I was cur kind of curious about, and we sort of touched on it a little bit, but I, but I think it's interesting for you to take on this topic in a book, and I'm and I think that we alluded to the sort of the difficulty, and I'm, it seems like we're all probably you know on some version of the left wing and i think it's like how do you have you gotten any like reactions for for like tackling this topic from people and like how do you sort of navigate because i think it's really easy to, to look like a reactionary when you're when you're tackling this and, the, and i wonder how have you navigated that and has it been anything when people see oh you wrote a book on this and it's like people maybe make assumptions and i'm kind of curious about that yeah mate it's it's all i, I did a, i did a book launch for the book my my uh uh I had a book launch and uh, at the start of the book launch, I showed the the scene, the clip from the office where the black man's cock joke is told. And uh, the next day, you know, the person who chaired the book launch came back and said, we've had a complaint. Somebody's complained um, oh, God. about how that could have made someone, it's, you know, a black person feel uncomfortable. And it, it and it was kind of like you've really missed the heart of what, you know, the purpose there, it, it, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was a, it was a clip obviously there was an analysis that went with it it wasn't just that type of thing um and that's to be honest with you that's the only it was interesting it came from the actual book launch i presented um the the sort of the heart of the book uh on three other occasions and i'd shown that scene the, the scenes as well and had, had had and had never necessarily got a bad response from it if that makes sense i think it was this yeah so it's I suppose that's, I suppose that's the only, that's, I mean, that's the only openly negative thing I've, I've had. It was something I really, you know, I, I was very conscious of when writing the book. I just could never, I think, you know, I think that uh, when the episode aired, um, which was, I, I it was either 2001 or 2002, I just never forgot that joke and, and, mm. and the way it was played out. And it was something I really want to dedicate sort of a close analysis to, because it seemed, you know, it got ignored a lot in debates on, on sort of race and political correctness and the use of comedy and approaching those. I think I didn't want to lose comedy because I sort of, 
I wanted to use comedy to subversively challenge, obviously, racist beliefs and assumptions. And I think it was, um, it was something I didn't want to put in scare quotes or stand back, you know what I mean? Um, or just, yeah, it's, it's, when, it's when things get told no. It's when, it, that to me is the issue. When, when yeah. you know, we're banning that, no, that's not happening. And it's like, well, okay, well, then we've lost the debate there. I don't know. It's tough to be in the situation because I think the temptation to to absolutize is just so it's so great on both sides that I feel like people with kind of our, uh, you know, to include me and Matt and you. And it's like uh, people who are interested in. Well, Zizek, I think, is, is one of the few, I think, who's kind of like trying to occupy this sort of space to like notice that there's these dynamics going on that actually like prevent or, or kind of like are self-defeating that we don't realize in our political projects. And, you know, earlier you were talking about enjoyment and I'm reminded, I wonder, have you ever heard of this? Um, there's this blues musician, this black blues musician who started befriending KKK members. Uh, and just because he was so curious about like why they hated him, he's this American guy. And, and then he started just talking to them about music and, and then eventually over the years, not never challenging them overtly on their beliefs, but just like talking to them. And then he ended up collecting like dozens of robes of, of KKK members who gave up the clan because of just like engaging with him. And, uh, and they made a documentary about him and there's a striking moment where he's talking to black lives matter members and they're all furious with him right because because he's and i and i think it kind of makes me think about how there's the enjoyment of the racist but there's also kind of the enjoyment of the anti-racist right and it's like and it's like when somebody is actually i felt like this guy daryl davis was sort of disrupting that enjoyment because he was like you can actually humanize these people who are racists and just talk to them and maybe that'll work um it's, it's finding that shared absence. I think, you know, what, what, what is it that you both don't have, which is why one of you has turned to racism in the first place altogether, I, I think is, you know, is interesting there. It's, you know, the, the KKK is a really interesting example. I remember, a, you know, a famous um, a sort of psych social psychologist in, in the UK, Michael Billig, you know, he, he wrote a lot about uh, comedy and, and racism and, and he, he went on, he went on, uh, uh, sort of KK uh, web KKK websites and specifically looked at like jokes pages. They have jokes mm. pages on KKK websites and would analyze the jokes. But his analysis for me always ended up saying, and they're racist. Well, I thought again, well, of course they're racist. You know, you've, you've gone to a racist website to read racist jokes and the content is racist, but you know, there's a formalness to there. And I think it's, again, it's something in the book I really wanted to move away was, was ignore, you know, get away from the content, the fact that a, a black uh, uh, blues, you know, uh, singer spoke to a KK member and look at the form that, that might be taking place. The formal logic of the joke is where you might find subver subversion there. And it's something that I tried to explore a bit more. Um, you know, something I tried to look at in the book is sort of the importance there of, of the form. And that to me is what made the Ricky Gervais uh, scenes I analyzed really interesting because the form was constantly, there was something, there was, the form was being played with and used, I think, in a particular way. Mm. Uh, for me, the position of enunciation the person telling the joke moved in the process of telling the joke. So the content stayed the same. The content was racist. The joke's a racist joke, but the way in which the racist joke is told has a formal significance to it, which is, I think, which is something that under, I mean, that's essentially what Zizek's doing when he ever, he tells his risky jokes, isn't it? He's trying to draw attention to the formal logic at play in the joke he's telling. So get away from the racist content and look at what it exposes. What mm. presumptions do you bring to to to, uh, to to the joke before you even heard the joke? 
Uh, maybe one other cur- like curi- uh, thing I'm curious about. It's just like in general, what led you to an interest in Lacanian psychoanalysis and Zizek? Like, was that just something you you learned in in undergrad? Uh, like, how did that process uh, like lead you? Because it's obviously it's a huge influence on your work. So yeah, I was n- never in my undergrad was I taught Zizek or Lacan or psychoanalysis, and I think um um and I th- well I. I'd always say to anybody, and you know, perhaps it's the people we learn on the side, so to speak, that actually are the ones that we we really enjoy listening to. Um, I think for me, it was uh, I remember I remember doing my PhD as well, and someone saying I was I must have gone on some sort of rant in the pub probably one night, and someone said to me, "Have you heard of this? Have you seen this fellow online?" And I was like, "Oh no, who?" And it was then I remember, you know, it, it was it was Slavoj Zizek they were referring to. So I must have, I must, they must have seen the connect, a connection there, I don't know, of some sort. But it was actually a colleague who I worked with um, at my at my university, who sort of who who introduced me to to Zizek's work. So this would have been um, probably probably the back end of about 2015. Yeah, I read the Sublime Object of Ideology, and it was yeah, I could, my brain was different after that. It was like sort of I think. He gave you he gave you the language to say what it is I wanted to say, but couldn't articulate in any user theory before. My background was predominantly sociology as well. So I think that was very sort of, you know, you stay away from any sort of psychology or, you know, psychoanalysis. The two aren't connected at all. But I think I think, you know, um, a, a boredom perhaps was, was, was social theory predominantly, which I think was just lacking. Yeah. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Uh, do you know the comedian uh, Patrice O'Neill? Uh, he 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 was American. I think he died like maybe five years ago. No, no, then no, no. There's a clip that I always liked of him where he's. Where, I think it was. It's actually thinking about maybe just like showing you like um the the clip. I don't know if you'd be up for that. It's like uh, yeah, oh definitely yeah yeah definitely okay. Let me see. Let me see if I can. I mean, we may or may not use it in the final edit, but I just thought it would be it could be interesting. Okay, let me see if now is radio cleaning house after the Imus debacle. With me now, new city president, now new city president, Sonia Osario. She took part in a recent protest calling for radio stations to stop stop supporting negative language in music and talk radio. And also our favorite stand-up comic, Patrice O'Neill. Thank you, sir. Patrice, uh, are ONA next? I hope not. I hope JV, I wish JV and I was going to lose their job or Imus. It's funny. This is the thing. I, I have, I don't know her but I'm, a, I'm assuming that she has nothing to do with funny so I'm gonna speak as the expert on funny funny people should just be left to trying to be funny what if, what if they're not funny then you made a mistake but how many listen how many times has an unfunny how many f- unfunny rape jokes lead to rape like so, I don't know how many jokes about rape there are there's a lot but your your world is not funny your world is uh, next <laughs> next on the big story my world is people trying to be funny well i mean you you think it's okay to try to make jokes about rape i'm diabetic i make fun of that i'm a victim i might lose a toe but i'm trying to make fun of i'm trying to make fun of anything i i think i can make fun of sonia you know what's happening now is the marketplace okay is deciding what's appropriate or what's not appropriate it's i think the nation is just tired there's a new mood in the nation what nation the nation you know what we're tired of things that are just just a nation this paper and you i'm I'm not the nation i'm just speaking for me and funny you're speaking for the nation or you're speaking for yeah you know why because i remember six years ago doing uh something against anthony opening because they were just so outrageous and they're 
violent images to that you. they put out to women was just uncalled for. And now, now, I think people... You think they were trying to be funny? I think now people... In Do this you think they were trying to be funny? Tire. You know what? I don't care if they're trying to be funny. That's what I'm saying. Why something. are you Jeez. in that business? I've been to your show once, and it wasn't very funny being a woman. It was hilarious. Show, when you talked about... That's why she doesn't like me. I was in the paper with her, and the joke is hilarious. It's called The Angry Pirate. And the lady who wrote it in, in her outrage didn't even know what it meant. And anybody who read it laughed because they know what funny... You're not living in the context of funny. You're living All in the context of have, fire. All have every right to be as funny as they want. They can go out and try to be as funny as they want, make as much funny, make as much money being as funny as they want. This is what's happening. There is a change in this country. People are realizing they it's have an opportunity to speak out. And advertisers are listening. You're Radio not talking. You're not listening. talking. You Sonia, are, you're not and, talking to who I talk to. And you're to. not going to get paid as much money anymore. Sonia and Patrice, That's look what at it this. Is. The marketplace. More is CBS speaking. radio firings. They've been on. The, they've been on a tear lately. All right. Are they cleaning house, or is this the PC cops run amok? You know what it is, John. You know what it is while you're reading that paper. It's the PC cops run amok. Well, you think Who's she's a PC, a PC cop? cop? Of course she is. She's, she has an entire encyclopedia of, of her stance on it, but it's no passion involved. It's not a real, this is just what she has to say. We are outraged and oh, fired and fired an and fired. Name calling. I'm outraged. I am I'm, outraged. You should, be. you should be outraged. I am a fool. Now, if I called you a fool, ah! You know what? People are feeling a new sense of entitlement. Who are these to people in this country? Who are the people? A new How can sense you, of entitlement Patrice, so here's what here's my question. How can you justify a bad joke, a joke that isn't funny? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Go ahead. An attempt that isn't funny, doesn't get any laughs, and is about raping a the first black woman to ever become the Secretary of State well, of the United States. Throw that at me. Well, why the, not? The, the attempt is what I'm trying to fight for. The joke may or may, funny jokes and unfunny jokes are, are come out of the same birth. They, you, you don't know if anything is gonna be funny. You should attempt don't to be you, able to make anything funny. Don't you think a joke about rape is doomed to be not funny? It's possible, but I've heard them. I've heard You've them. heard a funny rape joke? Uh, I say a couple. Watch my HBO special. I'm pretty good at it. Anyway, that's uh. That's a book in itself as well, isn't it? My God, yeah. what an example! No, I hadn't come across that example before, but that is interesting. There's a book written on rape jokes. I've got it's. Um, oh, is there? So, uh, yeah, I, I'm. Hold on, two set. I'm. I'm so annoyed. My rape. <laughs> I've left my rape. I got. I've got. I've got it because I've always wanted to write a paper on it. But there was a performance artist, a woman who uh, who published a book just of consistently of rape jokes, and Jizek uh, writes the. Uh, like the preface you know the the introduction a sort of review of it at the start um and i've always wanted to try and extend some of the ideas in the book by looking at this but she's a performance artist and what she would do was um the book she would stand on stage at say i don't know if it was a comedy festival or if she booked out a theater and she would put the lights all the lights would be on all the lights would be shining on the audience and she would just sit at the stage for like and read 400 rape jokes oh, wow. um and it's and it's like and it's so interesting, the stuff that's been written around it, because obviously, like, some people laugh at them, some people nervously laugh, some people get up and walk out. Um, I'm going to have to find... Um, yeah, that's so interesting. And wh what I also find interesting about that clip is, like, I, I, I thought of the clip when I was reading your book specifically about, like, sort of the, the idea of, of like, um, 
that that there's always a risk uh, in in our social interactions that it's like you have to just take the leap and how political correct or the way at least it was defined partially is like you know trying to trying to um, eliminate that risk right and I think that it seems like what he was trying to argue for there right is just like you know he's argued like the attempt that that I like when he says that you know funny and unfunny jokes come from the same place right it's like they're both they're both and it's like you have to be allowed to try to take that risk take that chance or something like that definitely I mean the joke sorry the yeah you're right and I think. It's, it's one thing, the way I tried to engage with that in the book was between, was looking, and I think it's, it's I think it's, I, I think it's, uh, Alenka Sopanjic uh, m- mentions it a couple of times. Um, I'm trying to think of other books. I don't think Todd McGowan ever, ever refers to it, but for me, what I thought was really interesting was uh, Lacan's position of enunciation and then, um, uh, sorry, the subject of enunciation and the subject of enunciated. So the enunciated is the content of what is said. And then the subject of enunciation is the position from which it's said um, as well. And I think this is really interesting because I remember I'd never seen the example or heard of it, but I think I was what I was listening to um, uh, another podcast by some other <laughs> some other people. Um, and they and um, there was an example there of uh, Zach Galifianakis who'd gone up to Chris Rock and I think and had said to, and had wanted to tell Zach Galifianakis wanted to tell Chris Rock the most racist joke he'd ever heard. I think to build that sort of weird, well, to build some form of connection with him. But I think what's really interesting there is that you've essentially got a white man telling a very racist joke to a black man who has no other, what can he do in that instance, Chris Rock, apart from, you know, offence or find it funny slash awkwardly have to find it funny because what else can he do? Yeah. Uh, in that situation and i think that's where this the subject the person from which the joke's being told is really interesting uh, because that can move and that and mm. what and what i think that position plays with is is what we've been referring to as the inconsistency the gap in the joke itself i mean perhaps the issue there was i didn't um i didn't obviously see the original fellas telling the joke but perhaps what was getting lost there was it was focusing on the fact that it might have been i don't know i presume two white fellas telling a joke about uh, it was yeah know, yeah two white fellas telling a joke about raping a black politician but it's, it's it, that's focusing on the content and not the position which i think is interesting mm. which is in, you know it's you know the example sorry because that is a good i want you're gonna have to i'm gonna have to find that link sorry and then they got the black comedian where the position changes where i think what you're getting out there with the risk, he's trying to expose the inconsistency of the joke. You know, what is this fetishization of the first black politician? Right. First of all, it's not, it, that's, that's a shame. That's a, that's a, that shows, that's what I was trying to get out with the example I used at the colleague. You know, the fact that, the fact that um, I'd only had one black manager growing up in the UK up until that, you know, is a problem, shows, highlights the problem. The fact that people felt uncomfortable enough to even refer to skin color in everyday conversation is the problem, the gap that it exposed. So I think um, maybe one last question I'll ask before I let you go is just, you know, sort of if a non-academic person were to ask you, so I saw the title of your book. So like, is it okay for me to use racist jokes? Like, like what, like, like, what would you say to sort of like, because obviously we've been talking, I mean, we've probably answered that question uh, through our discussion, but I'm just kind of, I'm interested in how you explain that, your view based on your research to like a non-academic uh, who just asked you, I saw the title, you're, you're talking about this, like, should I, should I like, should I not like political? Should I just say whatever I want? Like, obviously not, but I'm just curious, how do you, yeah, how do you? Yeah, so uh, okay, it's, uh, 
the book is not a call for more open yeah. racism. Yeah, and yeah, the fact yeah, that, you know, I would reply to that person, the fact you're having to ask the question, can I tell racist jokes, therefore, proves me, no, you should never tell a racist. Yeah. Don't even, don't even, <laughs> you're not funny. Don't even go near it because you've lost, you've lost something there. You're perhaps, you know what I mean? It takes a certain amount of, you know, it's the dexterity that is there in our social relationships. It's that, you know, it's what that comedian there was saying about, you know, the risk, the sort of the funny and the unfunny are there. Um, should you, you know, should you tell, I mean, you know, I would always say that, you know, if that person was asking that type of question, then, you, you know, you, you know, how many black people do you know? Or how many, you know, Hispanic people do you know? Because clearly you're not, those, those jokes would come out to the point where it wouldn't even feel like jokes, would it? Perhaps, perhaps that's the point that, that I'm trying to reach with the book or, or that might be this, you know, whatever the ideal that can never be reached is to the point yeah. where it would just be, it would just be funny, not opposed to being a, a, a racist joke, so to speak. Which yeah, I think, for sure. Yeah, which is it, which is good. But, you know, as I, you know, as I say in the book, you know, the, the joke I analyze is a racist joke, but in what ways is the telling and the formal logic of that joke able to elicit something about the subversiveness of, or the subvert, of the way in which comedy can be subversive. And you end up with a different approach, I think, to the joke than when you first hear it through. Yeah. Course. It's played out, the joke's played out over four scenes. And I think by the end, you're left, you're left appreciating the joke more though than what you would if, for instance, you were just to go onto the street and walk up to somebody. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, I, I think it's important, uh, you know, and I think uh, to, to some extent, I mean, I feel like the, your book is also it's in drawing attention to like the subversive potential uh, in comedy. I think it's like an important contribution because, uh, you know, I think we, we've lost sight of that somewhat on the left sometimes. So I think like being able to point out like how that can function um, is important. Yeah, well, that's exactly the left wants its object. The left wants to say, this is the path we take to achieving the utopia that the, of or achieving equality. And I think I don't, it, that's, and that's when it's playing the rights game. And I think actually you never get, you can never get to that object directly. It might take a little bit of joking and messing about a bit of offense along the way. Um, exactly. And I think that that's ultimately, like, maybe that's sort of how I, what I read the point of the book too. It's like, there's not going to like you, there's no, you're not going to be able to settle things comfortably. Like the, there's just like this inherent ambiguity that we live in as a consequence of just like being human beings with each other. And we just have to like, like realize the risks that are involved in that. And like that, if we want to make authentic connections and authentic solidarity, uh, it's going to involve doing things that there's some level of discomfort and to put it simply, right. It's like, you're not ever going to be able to eliminate that discomfort. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That antagonism, I think. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Oh, that's exactly. good. Or at least, well, yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> at least I think I might've written it how I wanted it to be perceived. Then, so thanks <laughs> good, for that. Good. Yeah, good. Well, Jack, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, really appreciate uh, your time and the book. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll uh, keep in touch and yeah, wish you all the best. No, thank you. This has been the best discussion I've had on, on the book. So thank you ever so much for taking the time out to, to obviously look at it and, and read it and, and speak as well. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah, no problem. How uh, it was, a, was an absolute pleasure. So.